0: You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Rebecca, I've got some news. All right. Okay, so we have been wanting to do a special show live podcast event for some time. We have. So we're going to combine our summer book club with a live event. Really? Yeah, we're going to be... In Concord, New Hampshire. So yeah. that means if you're in Australia, you're, you probably can't make it. <laughs> but on September 6th, which is the Tuesday following Labor Day, we are going to be at the Hatbox Theater in Concord. And we're going to be talking about uh, Wild Lake, which is the Laura Lippman book. We'll be going over our summer reading thoughts and doing other podcast stuff. And we want a crowd to come and be interactive. We'll have audience participation. Will we
1: take questions?
0: Well, of course we'll take questions. Nice. Best part, free admission.
1: Free admission. Yeah,
0: there's going to be a tip jar if you want to throw something in to help pay all the techs who are there to turn the lights on. That's great, but you could just come. And so I figured this out. The audio book is 10 hours. So if you live within a 10-hour drive of New England, you could still get in your car that day listen to the whole thing, and then be there for the live podcast.
1: So details about this event will be on our website. Yeah, it'll be
0: coming up. Check back at our website. Not everything's uh, set in stone, but it's like 7.30 on Tuesday the 6th.
1: And it is a non-ticketed free event, but we will have some sort of RSVP system, so we make sure we're not underbooked, overbooked, that kind of thing.
0: And why do we need to do that? It's true. At Hamilton, they just open the doors. People come in. (laughs) And I'm not throwing away my shot. All right. Should we start the show? Let's do it.
1: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today we're gonna to discuss the Netflix series that has everyone Googling MK Ultra and who the heck are the Duffer brothers. It's called Stranger Things, and it is both strange and great. We're also going to discuss the latest on a bevy of crime cases, real and fictional, with updates about Adnan Syed's appeal, Bo Bergdahl's legal situation, and of course, the goings-on in HBO's *The Night of*. Joining me to get all of that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
0: Rebecca, it just seems like yesterday we were doing this. <laughs>
1: And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and most badass of all, licensed PI, Laura Bricker. Welcome back,
2: Laura. Thank you. I've been searching all week for something like Toby to say, but I just, I don't have any foreign greetings for you. So here I am. (laughs) Sorry. And also with us is our favorite
1: all-American devil's advocate, crime and noir fiction writer, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby.
3: Bonjour. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: very romantic, Toby.
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm a romantic guy. (laughs)
1: You are a romantic guy, and you're a resilient guy, even though this summer I know we've been very inconsistent with your Amazon items list, you know, the list of items purchased by our listeners on our Amazon.com link. I did send you the list this week, and you agreed to look through it and just curate, maybe recommend, give us the very best item that one of our listeners purchased using the Amazon.com link this week. Do you want to tell us what that item is?
3: Well, the one I chose was the... uh Macri mushroom shaped new portable corner desk vacuum cleaner, (laughs) mini cute vacuum cleaner, dust sweeper in pink. (laughs) Why is it mushroom shaped? I just don't get that. That is unclear to me. (laughs) Among the mushroom shaped new portable corner desk vacuum cleaners, I hear the Macri is amongst the best. Oh, that's good.
1: I, I imagine that Dyson guy making a commercial for this. It sucks better than all of the other mushroom shaped vacuum cleaners. And, uh, Laura, there's something that I need to ask you about. Okay. I heard a rumor your husband delivered a baby on a highway. <laughs>
2: No, it actually wasn't my husband. But, um, you know, he has delivered babies before. And he says, anyone who tells you that childbirth is beautiful is lying.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs>
2: Why was he in the cover of the newspaper? Um, he was on the cover of the newspaper because three of the firefighter paramedics at his fire department, in Amesbury, Massachusetts, were taking a woman that was in labor to the hospital and they were crossing over the bridge, the river that goes by Newburyport and Amesbury, and the woman delivered the baby in the back of the ambulance. So he was on the cover of the newspaper because he gave these guys all a little pink stork pin to wear on their uniforms. Oh. Nice. I know awesome. that
0: bridge. We were just there in Newburyport. I know. So that's why I was That's a was... big bridge. That's, you know, that's a great place to, like, come into the world. <laughs>
2: It's it is. It's a brand new bridge too. It's it's a brand new bridge,
1: like between two very different places too, which is really interesting. You know, yeah. you could be born on one side of the bridge or the other side oh, of the yeah, bridge. Oh yeah, that's it.
0: But if you're born <laughs> right in the middle, you just don't belong to either world. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, speaking of not belonging to either world, that was a very apt segue, Kevin. We are kicking off the show today by talking in a generally spoiler free way about the latest
0: Wait, stop, stop, stop. Can we just explain About what's special about today's podcast episode.
1: (laughs) Sure. What's special about it?
0: Okay. The four of us recorded this last night. Yes. And we almost got all the way through it and the computer crashed. Yes. So 24 hours later, we're doing it again.
1: That's how much we care. That is how... (laughs) I just appreciate that you pulled the razor blades out of my wrist as I was about to break them wide open. Ladies and and gentlemen, we got
0: almost all the way to the crime of the week and Mm -hmm. then the thing just... We have a 500 megabyte file of silence. I can't figure it out.
1: (laughs) Oh, I tried all the engineering tricks. So does
3: Harry's razor (laughs) (laughs) blades?
1: Well, so Kevin, I'm just going to give you an opportunity then to repeat the excellent joke you made at the beginning of the show. You ready? Yeah. Hold on. Joining me to get all that done is my true crime co-author and real life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
0: Boy, it just seems like we did this
3: yesterday. (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's like Groundhog Day. Makes more
3: sense this time.
0: (laughs) So we'll see who's going to be stealing each other's good lines from last night.
3: That's right. I'm repeating all my answers. from last night, verbatim. All right.
1: <laughs> I'm just hoping that we get as a sponsor Apple Computer so that somebody can please send us a new recording computer since my hundred year old MacBook Pro, I think, may have exploded inside. And that was the problem. I actually
0: could see a ghost rise out <laughs> of the keyboard and go and vanish. It's been that.
1: resuscitated many times. Yeah. It served me well. It had one job, which was to record the show. It's not used for editing, it's not used for anything else. And last night was the last time I will be using it for that. Let's put it that way. All right. So back to the subject at hand, Okay, We are kicking off the show by talking in a spoiler-free way, we're going to try anyway, about the latest must-see series from Netflix, little eight-episode show called Stranger Things. We will try not to spoil any major plot points, But if you feel strongly about not hearing us talk about the show, you can fast forward to the back half of this episode for now, return to listen after you've caught up, or you can just watch Stranger Things and then come back to this episode. We'll still be here.
0: Yeah, we're not going anywhere. I mean, even though we blew up a file, this file is still in your phone or on your computer. (laughs) You can go watch the thing, and if it takes a week or a month, then come back. We're still going to be here.
1: But if you know you're not going to watch it and you want to hear us talk about it, here's a quick summary of the show. It's 1983 in Hawkins, Indiana. 12-year-old Will Byers vanishes mysteriously. Will's mother, Joyce, is frantic. She tries to find Will while police chief Jim Hopper begins investigating. And so do Will's goonie-like gang of friends, Dustin, Mike, and Lucas. At the same time Will disappears, a young girl with a shaved head and lots of magical mind (laughs) powers shows up in town. And while the audience knows that she's connected to the sinister government facility working behind a chain-link fence in town, when she joins up with a group of boys It becomes clear she knows the whereabouts of their friend and also about a very scary monster that is running around the town making people disappear. That's basically the setup. So, weird question but important question. I'd like each of you to answer this in just a few seconds to kick off our discussion. Kevin, how did watching Stranger Things make you feel?
0: Warm and fuzzy inside. It was kind of nostalgic because it has a very strong 80s gestalt to it i like to say that if it's like Stephen King and Steven Spielberg had a baby that was eight episodes long.
1: With a bald head.
0: With a bald head. No. <laughs> I mean, Because it really takes sort of part of like what we like about those two storytellers. Mm-hmm. And just embraces it in a way that isn't campy and isn't a cheap ripoff but sort of enhances that. And, you know, for people of our age grew up in the 80s. I think it really re- resonates.
1: That was a really long, few seconds. Oh, yeah, answer, like, Kevin.
0: yeah, yeah. I, I had all night to prepare that one, too.
1: <laughs> uh, Toby, how did Stranger Things make you feel as you've been watching it?
3: Yeah, I'd agree with Kevin. It's, it's nostalgic. For the high school kids in it, I mean, they're basically exactly the age I was during 1983. So it nails that for me, at least.
1: What about you, Laura? Did you get the warm and fuzzies when you were watching Stranger Things?
2: Not necessarily the warm and fuzzies, because I was definitely one of those people that was very chicken when it came to watching any sort of movie with suspense in the 80s. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, felt like I was a kid again and found myself actually hiding my eyes in the first episode (laughs) (laughs) when the scary monster was coming. And I was like, ah, but I I really loved the nostalgic feeling of it. Um, But it did bring up that, you know, you know, Jaws was something that I'm still scared of to this day. I still can't swim in the water when I can't see the bottom because I watched that movie in the 80s. -hmm.
1: Now, a lot has been talked about, written about this show. It is very on-purpose nostalgic. The opening is all about that Stephen King book typography. There are direct shot-for-shot homages to things like Stand By Me and E.T. and Carrie and Firestarter. synthesizer music. Synthesizer music. Uh, The production style, definitely geared to inspire nostalgia. Now, The show does rely very heavily on these 80s TV and movie tropes. And I'm wondering, Toby, what do you think it says about us that in 2016 we want to watch a series that includes these familiar themes in this sort of campy way? What does it say about us?
3: Well, I I think they did a smart thing in that they've sort of targeted the 40 to 60 year old audience with stuff that's going to be super familiar and super nostalgic And, you know, the plot of it is sort of moves along enough and is intriguing, I guess, enough that you don't have to just be in it for the nostalgia. It's also a kind of of a fun watch. I've been trying to think about, are there things today that are sort of reminiscent of 1983? And, you know, I don't know, you know, so much of this kind of stuff, like the smart, like horror movies and stuff, were tended to be comments on society or whatever. And I guess maybe I haven't just watched enough of it yet. I guess I'm through five of the eight episodes Mm -hmm. and I haven't really picked up on exactly what it's trying to say specific to our times. I mean, I think there's some sort of time non-specific themes that they have. But as for what it's saying about right now, I don't really have a conclusion yet.
1: Now, Toby, uh, I'm not going to do too many callbacks to our failed taping of last night. But one of the (laughs) things that we discovered last night was that you don't remember anything about E.T., which like broke Kevin's heart. You didn't
3: see it? I saw E.T. when I was in the theaters and I remember very little about it. You guys talk about the Goonies, which I Never saw. Oh my God, what? You talk about poltergeist, which I don't think I saw.
1: Oh my God. Where did you yeah, grow so up? In a cave?
3: Would that be bad if I. <laughs> it? Well, it would, it would explain a lot. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why I didn't see the Goonies. You know, maybe I saw poltergeist. I just, it didn't leave an impression on me. Don't tell me you were one of
0: those kids that grew up reading books. <laughs> well, <laughs> on occasion. That's
1: why he knows so many things. Yeah. Now, do you allow your 10 year old daughter to watch things that have mild swearing in them?
3: Yeah, sure. I then mean, we just watched uh, a couple of the Bourne movies. Good. Is
1: watch The sp- Goonies with your daughter. I promise you'll love it, and you will understand so much of our culture if you watch it. Am really? I- is that
3: what's been missing?
1: That's yeah, what's been missing yeah. Is, yeah. is The Goonies.
0: Well, Toby is right that a lot of like great science fiction and horror are usually allegories for some other theme, like you know, the day the Earth stood still is a Christ allegory, and then the invasion of the body snatchers is about communism. And I don't know exactly, right, if there's a— um, an allegory here, but I think there is a theme about childhood and about growing up, and and you know the the age of innocence and, and losing your innocence because it's a very child centric story with young characters.
1: Now, one of the things that I saw online on Reddit was a very compelling argument that. What the series really is about, and there's a lot of imagery around it and a lot of storylines that tie to it, is post-traumatic stress disorder. We see the main girl character, the one who's connected to the secret government facility, the one with the shaved head. Her name is Eleven. Everyone calls her Elle. She has all these flashbacks to her torture and imprisonment scenes in that facility. We see the chief, the police chief, who's investigating the story, Chief Hopper. He has a very difficult past and a lot of really post-war-like Very painful, you know, hallucinogenic slash flashback slash lashing out in violence sort of moments in the series. Now, Laura, hearing that, hearing that people have, you know, correlated the theme here with PTSD and themes around PTSD, does that does that ring true for you at all?
2: It does, but I think it kind of also goes kind of hand in hand with what I think is the, the much more obvious theme here, which is that this is a coming of age story for two groups of people. I mean, it's coming of age story, much like the stories that it was based on Stand By Me with these kids who are out they're on a quest. They're trying to find their friend. They're overcoming their fears. And then the two teenagers who partner up in the show, Nancy, and I don't remember Will's brother's name. Jonathan. Jonathan. So I think that's kind of the theme that I would go to immediately because it seems pretty obvious. But I think within that, you know, I can definitely see the PTSD angle there. But to me, it was more as I was kind of focusing on the nostalgia of the show. I was really honing in more on the coming of age elements.
1: Now, one of the things that we love to talk about on the show is writing and character development. I want to run through the characters of Stranger Things a little bit and sort of get our impressions of them and sort of our how we felt as we went along the journey with them. And Toby, as you're still going on the journey with them. First, we have to talk about Eleven. Kevin, I know that you have very strong feelings about this character and the actress who portrays her. Her name is Millie Brown.
0: I think that she is fantastic because she does so much with so little. She's given so few lines, but she's so expressive with her face and she you really can read every emotion that she has going on. And there was one scene, though, where she was crying out for Papa. Horrible Matthew uh, Modine character. And and the way she called to him just was so, so sad. And I don't know how old she is. She's 10 or 11 or... Young. uh, She's young. But she did a fantastic job, and we will see more of her.
1: Uh, Laura, what did you think about the fact that the way Elle's character... She had very little dialogue. I mean, mostly she would just kind of learn a phrase from the boys that she was hanging out with you know like mouth breather and then later she would repeat like these very key little very like you know 11 year old boy style phrases and that was like the majority of her dialogue
2: do you think that worked you know i think it did work because as you got to figure out more about her character and the fact that she really had never been and this is a little bit of a spoiler but she'd never been around other people in the traditional way. I mean, she was basically like a lab rat. So that's how she was modeling her behavior was after whoever was around her. I was just blown away by the fact that a girl that was so young was able to do these facial expressions and portray things in such a way that was so real. It was phenomenal that somebody that age could give such an intense performance. But I think her having so few words and the way that she came across really enhanced kind of the background as you get to learn more about that character. It's sort of, you know, just really sad for this character, you know, that this had been their existence. And this was really the first time she'd ever had anybody that was actually truly being nice to her, mm-hmm. aside from the kid who called her a freak all the time. One of the things I loved about the
1: character is that very much breaking the formula from the kids with powers narrative that we often see in films like Carrie and Firestarter, very often the kids with powers narrative, that's me you're doing air quotes right there, um, involves somebody that's coming of age, usually around adolescence. And Carrie, we see that that famous scene where she gets her period at the beginning, and that's sort of what unleashes you know, her uncontrollable powers, mm-hmm. is that they can't control them, Is that they're not able to calibrate them, that, you know, they have a, a moment of emotion that makes them dangerous. And usually that's the narrative is that
0: yeah, it's an a- that's an allegory for growing up.
1: Exactly. But Elle isn't. I mean, she's dangerous to those who are a danger to other people. She can kill people with her mind like. No problem, but she can also not kill someone with her mind, even when they appear to be a threat. If she knows when her friends are confronted with a school bully, she makes him pee himself. She doesn't, you know, make his brain explode. and it's spoiler. It's okay. I'm gonna take back what I said, generally spoiler free. But those details, you know, who's gonna kill us for spoiling those details? Anyway, uh, Toby, did you have any thoughts about Elle before we move on to the other characters?
3: No, I mean, I think she she does a great job. I think it's the kind of, role that is like, it can just be awful and sort of easily mocked. And, you know, what she does with it You can't. I mean, I think she comes off as being very genuine.
1: Yeah, I I do imagine there's going to be a Saturday Night Live skit, though, around Elle. I can just imagine how that they're going to to play with that. Let's talk about a controversial character. Toby, why don't you just go ahead and give us your thoughts on Joyce, played by Winona Ryder. That's the mother of Will, uh, the missing boy in the series.
3: You know, this is where I think it's sometimes hard to critique Stranger Things because she's just totally over the top and... For me, I, like, kind of flashed on this idea that it was like a hysterical Sarah Palin. And uh, <laughs> and then I couldn't stop thinking about that. With that, that. that Midwestern accent?
1: Was it the accent that was a...
3: Uh... Yeah, it was part of it. She just has little cadence things. It kind of sounds like if you gave Sarah Palin a whole bunch of drugs and then, like, put her <laughs> in a very terrifying situation. And ask her to like, use a dial it. telephone.
1: And oh. never allowed her to shower or wash her hair. <laughs>
3: right. And, you know, on the face of it, Winona Ryder is, is just completely ridiculous in this role. But if that's sort of what they were trying to get out of her, whether it was sort of a campy take on sort of hysterical mothers from 80s movies, you know, maybe you can justify it that way. But I, it doesn't work for me.
1: What about you, Laura? I, I know that you've had some strong reactions to the character of Joyce portrayed by Winona Ryder.
2: She was hard for me to take. Just the manicness that she had going on. And and it was like there was never any real variation in her personality or her demeanor through the entire series. She was always just frantic and crazy seeming. And, you know, I got my husband to watch this for like 20 minutes with me when he was torn away from the bush people of Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> he now texts me from downstairs, by the way, to let me know when they're on TV. That's good to know. But, you know, he was watching with me and I was like, God, she's driving me crazy. And he's like, well, then she's doing her job as an actress because she's eliciting a response in you. So his perception was that she was actually acting very well because she was making you, the viewer, have such an intense reaction to mm. her character. I have a a big soft spot for Winona Ryder. Uh, We're about
1: the same age. She was in one of my favorite films, The Age of Innocence, for which she was nominated for an Oscar. And of course, she played Spock's mom in the new (laughs) Star Trek reboot. And we all know how I feel about Star Trek. All right, Kevin, I want to move on and talk about Chief Hopper. All right. He is the adult in the series who... Very much, I think, as an homage to Stephen King, as an homage to a lot of very, very nostalgic touchstone 80s stories, is the adult that gets it that figures things out right away that is absolutely believing the kids shortly into the story not like disbelieving them the whole time and then coming around at the end like oh you're right the whole time but like he's smart he's with it and he's sort of
0: and he can punch a guy
1: he can punch the hell out of everyone tell me what you thought about chief hopper
0: uh yeah good setup he's damaged but he is the one adult figure that brings together the idea that the kids are not Crazy, you know. If I had twenty four hours to think about how to praise this,
1: <laughs> oh, if only,
0: if only. <laughs> I mean, we think we talk about this being very Stephen King and Spielberg esque, but you know, this really has its roots in in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Where the setup is that we have a small group of people and we are isolated from the rest of the world. We are all by ourselves in doing this, and there's no one else to help us.
1: I'm, I'm curious. Is and, it because they're in Indiana in a small town, or is it just because of no, the way because, that they live?
0: No, it's because they are children. Okay, and that the adult world is something different. It's not called strange things. It's called stranger things. And I wonder if that play on words doesn't have to do with children and stranger danger and the things that children are told to be afraid of aren't the things that they really need to be afraid of. Right. So Chief Hopper comes in and he is part of the group where I get it. I understand you. We're still by ourselves in this together. But he brings the authority of the adult world, which is what the kids don't have.
1: Do you way. find that comforting as a viewer? When you see a character like that, get it. Like He figures it out. I mean, granted, he's not on the kid's side immediately. He's not on Joyce's side immediately, but he figures it out relatively quickly without skepticism and just he's not easily fooled let's put it that way let's not get too spoilery but is that comforting to you do you you find comfort in that as a viewer because I do
0: you find comfort that there's an authority figure that believes the kids
1: yeah it's sort of how I feel when people finally could see Snuffleupagus like it's about (laughs) freaking time it's
0: about time
1: all right well I want to talk about my favorite character in the series I'll be transparent and that's Nancy she starts out one way in the series. She kind of ends up another way. Nancy is the older sister of Mike, who's sort of the ringleader among the younger kids set. Mm-hmm. There's two groups of young people in this series, the young kids and the teen kids.
0: Do you think Mike looks like Shelley Duvall I from, do. Somebody
1: tweeted that to shining. us. From The Shining? little Shelley Duvall.
0: There's there's a little wink to Stephen King. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. A link to really all the Stephen King films. Is all the kids have that look. Nancy in particular was especially well cast. She looked like an 80s girl movie star. My son said she she looked like Sloan from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and she did. I think
0: she dressed like the older daughter from Poltergeist, which is, again, another movie that this draws on. Very,
1: very much. So she starts out as a cliche. uh,
0: Literally. They said, you are a cliche. That's
1: right. She starts out as sort of the wallflower. She ends up starting to date a popular boy. We we see her have sex for the first time. And as the audience, I think we think, that's it. Like, Nancy's going to die, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's not what happens. Um, Toby, what did you think of this character's, you know, I know you're you're still in the middle of the series, so you're kind of in the midst of it. What do you think of her emerging transformation as you're watching the series transpire?
3: Well, I'm in kind of a funny place in the series, and I don't want to do a whole lot of spoilers. It seems like she transforms at least twice, three times. We kind of pick up with her at the beginning, where she has gone from being sort of bookish to now she's dating this kind of popular kid. So she's, she's in sort of the midst of that kind of rethinking of herself. And then in response to all the weirdness that happens, she changes again. Like she, she kind of, you know, in some ways puts aside that sort of more high school, more sort of, um, you know, surface coolness in order to address what's like a much more serious problem.
1: And she's also able to prioritize in a way that the adults seemingly can't. You know, one of the biggest fears the kids face in this series, and I think in almost all the movies that it's an homage to, from Stand By Me to Goonies to It!, they're afraid of the monsters and they're afraid of what's going on. But what they're really afraid of all of them, including the teens and the little kids, is their parents finding out about their secret lives. Right, right. They're they're afraid of their parents finding out about the bully in school who's actually by the way a legit bully with a knife. You know, they're afraid of their parents finding out about the party they had. They're afraid of their parents finding out that they're keeping their walkie-talkie under the bed or their you know new alien friends stash. They're, they're more afraid of the parents discovering their lives. They'd rather
0: cover for the missing friend with the mom as opposed to saying to mom, I had a party. She's missing.
1: Right. And Nancy is the only kid who's able to prioritize and say, Mom, the fact that I had sex is not important. My friend is missing. But Laura, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this idea that, like, apparently in the 80s, And all the pop culture and you know i kind of remember this from my own childhood it was really easy to keep your entire life secret
2: from your parents as a
1: parent of a kid about the same age as the kids we see in stranger things how do you feel about that
2: well my kid has obviously got no chance in keeping anything secret i totally investigate like all of his friends and check up on where he is and at this point I think he realizes that and he just confesses to me as soon as he gets home. Um, (laughs) He doesn't even try, but it's good. You know, like last week there was this big hubbub on the camp bus that it was stopping at a park and ride bus stop before his bus stop. And there was a guy out in the parking lot with a phone. He was all like, oh, it's a stalker. It's a killer. It's Mm. this, it's that. And then the bus driver's like, yeah, we found out it was a Pokemon stop. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah. Now, unlike
1: Toby, I do remember E.T. I have seen it since, you know, mm-hmm. 1984, whenever it came out. Was that right? 1984, 1985? Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it at the time And, yeah, it was normal to go out at night and bike around with your friends and go places and not be in touch with your parents and not have them know where you are. Kevin, what device in the storytelling does that serve? Like, how does it serve the story to have the kids be disconnected, to have them have these secret lives and have their parents not be able to track them?
0: I think it's also the same way that putting it in the 80s works, is that it's pre-information age. So that leaves you with a world that is full of wonder and mystery. And then discovery—you can't just Google, for example, how to create a deprivation chamber, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it just was like—and you, you know—the the fact that they have to talk with these Radio Shack walkie-talkies, enormous and not, walkie-talkies, right—and not exact text one another by taking away some of the tools that we have, that we would just say we'd be able to solve it like this, and, and placing it in this time not only creates a sense of a place that works very well, putting it in the 80s, but it also pulls it away from the things that would make it easy to solve and and maintains both the mystery around how we solve a monster event and we're in an era where parents still reign supreme.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Toby, I'm actually glad that you're not finished with the series yet? Because I think that the perspective on a a series like Stranger Things does change when you've finished it, and you're still in it. So at the heart of this story is an investigation. We have, you know, three parallel teams looking for answers to these parallel mysteries, you know, Will being missing, Elle's appearance, and of course also the the monster in town. We have the cops, we have the teens, and then we have the little kids. What do you think of these parallel teams and how their stories are playing out for you?
3: The teenagers... At least where I am, it's basically two. It's Nancy and Jonathan who, again, I like make these judgments about these characters. And I can't get rid of them, but he seems to me like a teenage Stephen King.
1: Very much so, yeah.
3: For the other two groups, the, the police and the younger kids, you know, there's a – especially like sort of uh, potboiler books and I guess in some movies, like there's this thing where yeah. you have a team and it's usually – it's often just a duo, but it's, you know, a Caucasian, usually man who's sort of the hero, he's he's pretty quote unquote normal. And then he has a sidekick who tends to be something quote unquote outside the normal and it's somebody with a, a weird backstory or it's somebody who has a disability or often it's a, a racial minority. It's like Green Hornet and Cato, for instance. So both these groups, both the police and the younger kids have sort of the the normal white male as the leader. And then there's like the somewhat weird sidekick. And then there's the African-American sidekick. You know, again, it's like, are they doing that on purpose? Because it, it plays into these tropes from the 80s? Because if they're not doing that, it seems like to me that a more interesting choice would have been... To make Lucas, the African-American kid, if he was the one who was the leader and he was the one who had the relationship with Elle, seems to be like sort of a more interesting choice as far as the story goes. Interesting. Drink. <laughs> yes.
1: That's an interesting criticism. Drink. And, and another criticism I've seen, it doesn't count when I say, because I actually oh. pro- I pronounce the T in interesting. Oh, OK. Right. <laughs> it is a fascinating criticism, Toby, that you've made and one that I wonder if was intentional or was just formula um, another criticism that I've seen and Laura I'd love you to to respond to this is that the show is very dependent on nostalgia around childhood but also very limited in its view of women you know there's a lot of lack of nuance you know Nancy aside is a lot of lack of nuance in, in Joyce's character you know there's poor Barb Nancy's friend who's basically just there to be the not so cute friend and we all know that you know Barb's fate is maybe tied to her plainness in some way do you think that there is a problem with the women in Stranger Things?
2: I don't know if it's a problem. I felt like they were they were sort of flat, like a, a stereotype almost of what, you know, you might see as a woman in the 80s in a movie and that there wasn't a lot of depth to them. So Mike's mother, for example, with the, you know, Farrah Fawcett hair and then the strange little baby who never talked and just <laughs> like, or a toddler, like walked around, which, you know, I was waiting for her to freak out. That was a character that really irritated me because I felt like, She just took everything at face value. You know, she's just kind of going along. Um, There didn't seem to be a lot going on, but then there was some times when she did seem to be a little bit more savvy. You know, Barb did sort of seem to be that stereotypical not attractive friend that was always with the attractive girl that, you know, you got invited to the party, but you had to bring your friend. And I felt like maybe it was playing into the stereotypes of that era a little bit, but there definitely was not a lot of depth to the women. I don't
1: think it's a coincidence that the women... Feel very much like the women in 80s films. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Barb looks a whole lot like the Martha Plimpton character in Goonies. I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> what,
0: what about the fathers?
1: Yeah, the fathers are oh, also yeah. very absent. They're very much like not part of the story, right? Except, yeah. for, of course, for Will's I father. I mean, Will's father
0: is not a, a great guy. He doesn't an seem to father, care, yeah. yeah. And Mike's father just kind of checked out and doesn't know what's going on. That's
1: right. He's a very busy career man who has right. no idea what's going on. And with his I family. think the
0: criticisms of Winona Ryder are probably due to the fact that it, it was written as a one-dimensional character. There's not a lot of nuance to it. Yeah, you needed her to be the grieving mother who is driven to find her missing son, but you know there weren't a lot of sort of highs and lows and stuff. It was mostly her being sort of manic- running around the house, and I think that kind of lends to what people would are describing as a shrill performance.
1: Yeah, yeah. But One of my favorite lines is when she says, what did she say? Thanks for the casserole. You have to leave now.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I thought I figured out a way to work that in. Kevin, I've got a question for you. We've talked about E.T. We've talked about The Goonies. We've talked about Firestarter and Carrie and Stand By Me. Close Encounters of the Third Kind was another thing that we saw some imagery around. We saw imagery around It. We saw a lot of imagery yeah, around. There was yeah. Slingshot. There was a monster. We saw um, The Mist, another Stephen King story, going into an abyss with a rope and sort of being pulled in. So many Carol homages Anne, to... Go into
0: the line. Yes, so
1: many homages to things that exist in the world. Right. Is Stranger Things new or is it a mashup and not new? What is it?
0: Well, there's nothing new under the sun. I think that it's definitely an homage to those themes and those better stories. Even Stephen King tweeted out that he thought that Stranger Things was great. He said it it looks like Stephen King's greatest hits, and he meant that in a good way. Right. And so all that classic Stephen King stuff from the early part of his career when his name appeared on the book cover in the same font as the Stranger Things title. Right. It's all that stuff, and you can do it very ham-fisted, or you can do it in a way that does pay homage to the best parts of those stories and that storytelling. And I think that's something that we're going to talk about when we get into Wild Lake.
1: I think it's something that we talk about over and over again. And what you said that's interesting, there's no such thing as a new story under the sun. You can trace every story to a story that's been told a million times before. And that brings me to my final question. I mean, I feel like we could talk about Stranger Things for hours, but I do. we have other things we need to talk about. Toby, Stranger Things is absolutely the must-watch show of the moment. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's watching it. Everyone's giving out their Netflix credentials so that their <laughs> friends can watch it. What do you think is the secret sauce to its popularity?
3: Well, I, I think it's it combines sort of nostalgia for a lot of people like roughly our age. You know, because it's taking kind of the best of this type of 80s pop culture and repackaging it a little bit. That, that stuff's still entertaining. At least.
1: Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that it shows what we've lost with the advent of being so connected and technology and, and kids and their parents now having these like umbilical cord type relationships?
3: That's an interesting... Th- uh, drink again. Drink. Um, <laughs> that's a fascinating thought. <laughs> um, I Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably part of it. I don't think there's that many movies these days that are kind of these like, scary slash coming-of-age movies. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's it's more, you know, hostile and...
1: Torture porn. It's older teens, it. young
0: adults, and not
3: Little pre-teens kids. and teenagers.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. That, and, and that and critical no, time, yeah.
3: There's no, like, transformative aspect to the story, right? Do the people in Saw have, like, these major personal transformations. I don't think so, you know? no. I think that was kind of mean, Before th- they get cut up, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Cut well, up,
1: there yeah. was that movie where people had that huge transformation and became a human centipede. I've heard about that <laughs> Oh, <one>. my God.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Laura, what do you think is the secret sauce, and what do you think about what Toby just said?
2: Well, I think the secret sauce, I'm going to say right now, is the music. The music yes. was mm-hmm. so brilliant. I heard there's a soundtrack coming out, and I'm pretty excited Ooh. about that. There is a soundtrack coming out. The music is evocative and
1: cool,
0: it's it, the Yamaha DX7, which was the sound of the 80s. That's the name? of the, the keyboard? That was the, that was like the first commercially available <laughs> great synthesizer.
1: Laura, what do you think about what Toby said about, you know, the kids and their parents and the lack of technology? And is that important, too?
2: It is. You know, But it's something it's funny. It's something I've been thinking about a lot this summer. So it really hit home for me. We've been spending a lot of time up at the lake this summer. And my son, I, you know, like many children his age, is just addicted to the iPad and the technology and at this place that we're going it was like I had this completely refreshing moment where all the children that go there go out in this like common field area and play tag yeah and ride their bikes around and they're out there and nobody's I know and nobody's paying attention to them I'm like hey have you seen Will lately no Mm. I don't know where he is and you can relax but it's safe and I think in this world that we're in now we all want that, but it's so hard to find often in our everyday lives. So I think for me, that's what this show sort of
3: brought home. That's an interesting point because I think the reality. Drink. Yeah, God. <laughs> Keep going. You got it. Don't stop I'm torturing. Out of, I'm out it's,
2: of drinks.
1: It's, you know what, awful. It's sexist. It's just like when people complain about my voice being too high, you know, that I talk too fast, whatever. It's sexist to complain about a woman's speaking voice on the radio I'm going to just plant a flag in it and say, that's the way Toby talks. And I'm just going to call you sexist if you make fun of it anymore. Kevin.
3: Thank you. <laughs> tell me a You're indicting all men when you give me a hard time about that. That's right. So tell us what was well, what's interesting. interesting is I, when you do talk about technology and sort of having information available to you, the reality is the potential dangers to children is lower now than it was in the 80s. You bet. But the sense that it's more dangerous is completely pervasive. That's right. Uh, I don't know what conclusion to draw from that. But I think that that's another thing that kind of plays in.
1: Kevin, you love Stranger Things, right?
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: What was the secret sauce for you that made you love it so very much?
3: Well, I do think, again, that it
0: takes the best part of the stories we loved from the 80s and, you know, puts the chocolate in the peanut butter. And it just it came out to be a great recipe. It is of its time. You know, of a simpler time. Like, I, you know, when you see, like, a bunch of teenagers, like, going to an Army-Navy store and buying, like, a bear trap and a handgun and all this stuff. I'm just wondering, like, how are they paying for that? They probably could use a really good credit card, which is <laughs> why they should probably oh. go to NerdWallet.com.
1: Nice. Very nice.
0: Uh, there are a lot of different websites, you know, that will look for things like good insurance rates for you or hotels NerdWallet.com does that, but with credit cards. You know, there's over like 1,700 credit cards that you can get from various banks, and nobody's looking at them and trying to put them all together in one place where you can review them and find the credit cards that actually work for you. Because there are some credit cards that work more with, you know, giving you shopping reward points or that have a lower APR or it's great for whether you're a student. I mean, like, maybe you need a card because you want to get a cash advance to repair all the holes you chopped in the front wall of your living room with an axe thinking something was coming through <laughs> or maybe if you lived your life as a lab rat you might want travel points <laughs> uh, so that's what a great thing about like a
2: is well you know uh,
0: Eleven could apply for her own credit card and there are hundreds of different cards out there so choosing the best one can be tough so you can go there look at different cards you think that might work for you maybe look at the ones that you already have in your wallet and find out a little more about them find out how
1: crappy they are
0: yeah find out how crappy <laughs> <laughs> they are. NerdWallet is not just going to push certain cards at you. They've got financial experts that give you straightforward, unbiased opinions. They'll tell you, this is good for these points. Oh, but there's also this hidden fee that you may not They're want. They're not trying to
1: get you to sign up for a credit card. They're just no. helping you be a better consumer.
0: They are. It's great financial advice and you know helping you find credit cards that work for you, a better credit card. So get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works hard for you. Visit nerdwallet.com crime That's NerdWallet.com slash slash crime. crime. NerdWallet.com slash crime.
1: Slash crime. Crime. (laughs) Wow, that was really, really good. A bit of transparency Um, in our dress rehearsal taping last night. You handled that completely differently. Toby, what did you think about how Kevin went into the ad in this real-life taping of our episode this week?
3: Well, I was going to say that for people nobody could know, but that last night he did a great one, and tonight he did a a different great one. So. <laughs> all right.
2: What do you think, Laura? How did Kevin handle that ad? Well, I have to say I liked last night's batter. Um, what? Because... I know, but last night Kevin used a little introduction about Winona Ryder being all crazy in the store and I was so much thinking about her that I didn't see the transition coming. Right. Uh, yeah. Tonight I was like, oh, they're buying stuff. I'd see it come-. But it was, still, it was still pretty smooth. It was still pretty smooth. Thanks. I thought it was pretty good too. Well, I'd like to introduce
1: a new segment this week and... Um, We don't have any special effects for it or anything, so I'm hoping that maybe... Maybe I can get
0: my synthesizer and go...
1: Maybe I'm hoping that maybe like I can just say it and then Kevin, you can say it and then I'll add a bunch of echo effects to your voice. So okay, I'm just going to yeah. say it and then you repeat. Right. Um, Now it's time for true crime updates. True, true crime true. updates. Very good. That was pretty good. I think it's going to sound <laughs> good with an echo. All right. Some big updates in the Adnan Syed appeal. Of course, Adnan Syed, the subject of Serial Season 1. Kevin, do you want to give us the update on what's going on there?
0: Yeah, last time we checked in. We were waiting for a deadline on when the state can file an appeal to the Court of Special Appeals, and they did do that, met the deadline. Essentially, their argument in their brief is that Judge Welch erred in saying that the linchpin of the case was the cell tower evidence. And and of course, that, that was the reason why the loss of confidence in that testimony is why he vacated the conviction. So the state is saying that the judge was wrong for drawing his own inference based on the evidence. And what it puts him in in this really sort of catch-22 because it means that if the cell tower evidence isn't the linchpin of the state's case, then it means the phone calls are. So that means that Asia McLean's alibi is now important. And the judge said that the only reason Asia McLean – why that wasn't a winning argument in the appeal was that – the cell data was what was really important. Right. So I don't know if they're trying to have it both ways here, but it's going to be. I think that's a hard argument to make. However, my opinion, though I'm not a great legal mind, I do play one on a podcast, I think that this is the state's only play. They have to try to appeal it and win it on appeal. Otherwise, they really have no choice because they can't take this back to trial. They'll just have to try to come up with um, maybe offering an, an Alfred plea or some other time serve something to get this off their plate if they can't walk away saying we have a conviction of some kind.
1: All right. Great true crime update there from Serial Season 1 subject Adnan Syed. Let's move on to Serial Season 2 subject, Bo Bergdahl. Now, Toby, I assigned you the task of figuring out what the hell is going on in the Bo Bergdahl case. Can you please break it down for us?
3: Okay. So the most recent development is that on Monday of this week, Bergdahl's lawyers asked the military judge to dismiss the charges against Bo Bergdahl. Why did they do this? You'll probably remember that during Serial Season 2, there was a little bit made about Senator John McCain and some statements that he made regarding Bergdahl's upcoming trial. For people who aren't familiar with John McCain, if you're not familiar with him, you're probably in living Indiana outside Australia. the United States. Yeah. I yeah. don't okay, remember
1: E.T. E. either.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's true. So anyway, John McCain is a war hero. He was uh, POW in Vietnam for five years where he was brutally tortured. Uh, he is the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He's probably next to the president, probably the most powerful civilian And he gets a lot of respect within the military. So he said about the upcoming Bergdahl case, he said, if it comes out that Bergdahl has no punishment, we're gonna have a hearing in the Senate Armed Services Committee. And I'm not prejudging, okay? But it is well known that in the searches for Bergdahl, after we know now he deserted, there are allegations that some American soldiers were killed or wounded, or at the very least, put their lives in danger searching for what is clearly a deserter. Is that a quote okay? from McCain, or that that's from McCain? Okay. So what happened was this past Friday, the Pentagon released to Bergdahl's lawyers an unredacted email. This email was sent from a colonel whose name was redacted to some of the advisors to the Senate committee. And it said that McCain's comments had raised some serious concerns across the Army. It goes on to say, if it is at all possible to have McCain issue a curative statement, that could be tremendously helpful. Oh, snap! So so this this email was sent two days after McCain made his comments. So essentially what the defense is saying now is the Army realizes how prejudicial this might be. Right. McCain controls, to a certain extent, the purse strings. He has influence on things like promotions and things like that. So by him coming out and saying that, it makes it impossible for Bergdahl to have a fair trial.
1: And also, he's very politically powerful. And I believe he made that statement while campaigning in New Hampshire, correct? With Lindsey in New Graham.
3: Hampshire, yep, for his buddy Lindsey Graham, That's who right. was running for president briefly. That's right. So um, D- Donald
1: Trump was not the only candidate who made statements about the Bergdahl case while well in New Hampshire. Also, uh, McCain did as well. Very interesting. And I think that we should uh, continue to keep an eye on it.
3: OK, August 22nd's the next thing at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, they may consider this motion, or they may just be considering delaying his general court martial from February 6th To a later date. Hmm.
1: All right. Well, let's move on to another true crime update. Uh, This, of course, is the murder of Andrea Cornish and the arrest of Nasir Khan for her murder.
0: Wait, that's not a true crime. No, it's
1: not. It's the plot of the night of the HBO series that we're all watching, but it's real to me, Kevin. It's real to me.
0: It's still clever 24 hours later.
1: (laughs) All right. (laughs) Let's catch up a little bit on the night of. I know we're all still watching it. Toby, what started out as a crime drama has now, in the last couple of episodes split into two stories. There's the jailhouse life of Nas and the legal mystery around who killed Andrea being pursued by John, his former lawyer, played by John Turturro. Should this show be one or the other, or does it need to fully commit to both of these storylines? What do you think?
3: I mean, I, I think it's fine for it to be both. And I think the jailhouse story is the more compelling of the two right now. I feel like the investigation story is, is going super slow. It just feels like there's quite a bit of filler. There's also, and I guess I learned last night that I did not watch the upcoming. uh, (laughs) The teaser for next week? The teaser for next week. But since I haven't, I will sort of say that, you know, there's a huge long setup in the pilot tracking Nas and like everybody who'd run into him and all these cameras that he was caught on. And people who he interacted with, and where he bought drinks, all the breadcrumbs. And we're halfway through, and exactly zero of those breadcrumbs have been picked up yet. The optimist in me says, "Well, it's going to be a pretty, you know, fast-paced last half as they go through this stuff." But to date, you know, there hasn't been much indication that there's going to be follow-through. I mean, I love watching John Turturro. I just wish he would move at a slightly faster pace. It's hard to with his feet. Like
2: exactly, that. exactly. <laughs> now, well, maybe
3: if you exercise a little bit more, you wouldn't have this problem.
2: He did exercise this week, Toby. He you did? Nazi? What did he do? He had sex with a hooker. Yeah, but not that's, on his feet. That, <laughs> that's a, that's a <laughs> myth. He didn't do
3: it standing up. That's a myth. That's not as much exercise as people think. <laughs> Is that what your wife tells you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Uh, uh, <laughs> Laura, we just heard Toby say that he thought the Rikers Island storyline was the more interesting of the two. What do you think of the Rikers Island storyline and the suspense that they've been able to build there.
2: For me, that's the part that I've really been drawn into because it's sort of a slow simmering sort of suspense. And there's certain suggestions and things that happen that put you on edge. The one that really got to me was when the guard came and gave Nas the sneakers. And he said, who are these from? And they're like, Freddie, what are they for? Traction. And then the next scene is this shower scene, and there's this like huge, hulking, muscular man, and I'm like, "Oh God!" And I'm like hiding my eyes because I think I know what's coming, and then it never happened. So, uh, you know, we all
0: thought it was coming.
2: Yeah. I mean I was just like, oh God, is this gonna be like the kite runner? Like I'm all set. So Speaking th-
3: that's- of spoiler alert. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, that book is like old now. People should have read it by now. Statute
1: of limitations is up on that one. Right. Yeah.
2: You know, there's definitely um, you know, and then the bedfire and waiting for the people that are sort of circling around Nas to make their move. But you know, for me, I'm gonna have to say the thing that I'm I'm most upset about. Being the cat lover that I am is what's going to happen to that poor cat that's in the shelter. And John Chitoro keeps checking in on the cat. Is it going to live? Is it going to the incinerator? I don't know. It's, it's very disturbing to me. Kevin, what do you think?
0: Well, again, if I had time to think about that... <laughs> And something would <laughs> pop in my head spontaneously. Spontaneously, I would I would point to the fact that the thing that Freddie says, who, who's great by the way, we'll
1: talk about Freddie in a second. Yeah.
0: Uh, that he said that one of the most popular books in the prison is Call of the Wild, right? And Freddie urges Nas to read it. As I, I've already read it. it, basically saying that they are the dogs in the prison, and so when uh, John brings the cat to the shelter. And he's on the phone. hears all the dogs barking. And so there's the cat in the middle of the dog shelter. Nas is the cat in the middle of the prison with the other dogs. He doesn't belong there either. And that's sort of what's driving Johns. I think that's a great metaphor for what Nas's situation is and how John feels about him.
1: Right, right. I think that the cat is also providing an underlying level of tension because you know it's on John Turturro's mind the same way that his feet are on his mind constantly and you see him at the doctor's office you know, saying when will it end as if he's being tortured. It reminds me a lot of that scene in The Americans You know, and in one episode Elizabeth has her jaw busted in the middle of a fight with an FBI agent and she breaks a tooth and for the next several episodes occasionally she'll be talking and suddenly wins in pain and so the viewer is very aware that she has this very painful thing going on in her mouth which is very intimate and personal and she can't get it fixed because she's afraid of being found out by the FBI.
0: So that's a, a plot device where with John in his feet. It's more of a a character development issue. It's also
1: an underlying source of tension that Mm -hmm. is always with him. We see him walking around. We see him at the graveyard. We see him in the courtroom. We always know he has this incredibly painful condition with him, this painful, uncomfortable, embarrassing condition that is Really, he's wearing his flaws on the outside. It it provides a lot of tension and suspense around the character, I think, that wouldn't exist if he was just a schlumpy guy walking around.
0: What's funny is the cops that he talks to and the judges and the other lawyers and the guards, they all seem to like him. But, I wonder if he likes himself,
1: yes, but, we also see him being disparaged by the fancy pants lawyer in that one courtroom scene. But before we get to that, the
0: one who doesn't really know him,
1: the one who doesn't really mm-hmm. know him, I, I want to ask Laura and Toby. Laura, I'll start with you because you brought up the theme of trust in this series a couple weeks ago. Yeah, Kevin mentioned Freddie played by the amazing Michael Kenneth Williams aka Omar. It would always from the be Wire. Omar to me, but maybe yeah. one of the greatest characters in television history. His role is complicated. He's offering Nas protection, and yet we see him, like, give a guy a serious beat down. We know he's dangerous. What do you think of this character, and do you trust him?
2: I really, this is one of the characters that I, I really am starting to like. He's getting much more complex as the series goes on. So he's basically a former boxer who becomes like a gang leader. And, uh, you know, it sounds like he's, he's kind of in his way running the prison, but he is sort of aspiring to be more than just sort of like what he perceives as the common prisoner. And he's sort of hoping to set himself apart intellectually. So he perceives himself as being much more worldly, knowing where different countries are that other inmates don't know about, reading books, And in the beginning, you're kind of thinking, oh, what does this guy want with Nas? And I I hate to say, but I'm like, oh, he wants Nas to be like his personal bitch. I mean, but in this most recent episode, we see that maybe there's a little more to it than that. That he's looking at Nas, as he said, as a care package for my brain, because this is somebody that's educated, that's a college student, somebody that can kind of further him in his own way, sort of distancing himself from the rest of the prison population. So at this point, I do want to trust him more than some of the others. But then again, I also wanted to trust that nice guy who was uh – Telling Nas how to act in prison, and obviously that didn't work out so well for him. So did not guess, work out. No. Uh, no.
1: We'll just see. I was very suspicious when he pulled out the photo of his niece, and it was the yeah. crime scene photo of his niece. I thought, a, that's probably not his niece.
3: Yeah. B,
1: he probably did it. Is what I thought right away. Yeah. Toby, what do you think of Freddie, A.K.A. Omar, his character, and do you trust him?
3: I hope Laura's right because my sense of it is that he sees in Nas prey. Naz is so isolated anyway that he seems like an easy guy to to pick off and he uses this appeal to Naz's sense of his own sort of intellectual superiority there as being the one advantage that he has and Freddy appeals to it in order to kind of lure him in. But I hope Laura's right for Nas's state.
1: All right. Now, Kevin, the story, a big storyline outside the prison in the last two weeks is this lawyer transition that takes place. Mm-hmm. We see this fancy pants defense attorney, Allison Crowe, basically poach Nas's case uh, from John Turturro's character, and she offers to do it pro bono. She brings along her Indian, not Pakistani, associate to Nas's parents' house to basically try to, uh, you know, basically bait them with a likable, attractive uh, woman close to their own ethnicity. And it works. She takes the case and she then makes some missteps. What do you think of this whole storyline?
0: You know, it's interesting because it, it serves the purpose of showing what John Stone is up against as an attorney. Right. I thought it was really interesting that she's supposed to be this big swinging dick and she comes into jail and everything she says to Nas is wrong. All the advice that she gives him is bad. Like what? Like saying like, you know, don't look at the judge and the judge says you're not looking at me and and, like don't say anything and the judge is waiting for him to give his, his plea. And it's really odd that she would take the, a big, high-profile case pro bono, only to try to plead it out.
1: That was odd, and I actually did some follow-up research on that to find out why she would do that.
0: And is it just for the PR? I don't think that's a like great PR. Essentially,
1: I mean- it is. This is what uh, our friend Legal Siri, Colin Miller, calls the Robert Shapiro School of Thought high-profile lawyer, takes a high-profile case pro bono, negotiates a sweet plea, then goes to the press and claims that you saved the day and got a great bargain from the state. It's a great way to get more clients. It's a great way to get your name in the papers. And the interesting thing about Alison Crowe, that character, is we saw her really, really take a turn when Naz's dad wanted to say something, and she snapped at him, you know, you don't interrupt me, I'm trying to save your son's life. But is she, though, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it also goes to show, look, like, the only Person that really believes Nas and really has his back is John Stone,
1: and maybe Chandra, the new uh, associate. Yeah, attorney. we'll
0: see how it. You know, the, the other characters continue to evolve.
1: Now, Laura, we really
0: don't. Freddie hasn't shown all of his cards yet, so I don't know how to take him yet.
1: Now, Laura, you used to work with public defenders. Yes. What do you think about when you see fancy pants, expensive defense attorneys portrayed on shows like The Night Of? And did you ever work with attorneys like this? Or did you ever see them in action?
2: I did. And, you know, one of the things, you know, people always have this negative connotation about public defenders. And, you know, in in a lot of places, public defenders are extremely overworked. They have very high caseloads. Here in New Hampshire, The Public Defender Program is an amazing program with extremely comprehensive training and support. And one of the things that always used to drive me nuts when something would happen like this where the family would like put their house up to basically pay for an attorney is that, you know, when you go to that private attorney like that They don't often have investigators like the public defender system does. It may sound better to them, but you're not always getting a better deal. And in this, you know, clearly Nas was not getting a better deal from this woman.
1: Yeah. And John Stone became the investigator. He was the one who actually found, you know, some information uh, about the victim's history that might be useful, and he was able to okay. shake down the office for an extra 150 bucks because he what he paid 354 <laughs> and then charged them 500. He went to the ATM and went and had a drink. Yeah. So one final question, Allison Crow, that fancy pants defense attorney, she negotiates you know a pretty sweet deal from her perspective for Nas. The deal ends up being on the table that he can plead guilty to manslaughter one, and serve 15 years in prison. Now. Even John Stone, who believes in him, basically begs him to take this deal. Toby, my question for you is this. If you were in that situation, if you were in Rikers Island with your only friend being Omar from The Wire and uh, (laughs) not such a great outlook, but you knew you didn't do it, would you take the deal?
3: That's a really hard one. You know, 12 to 15 years is a long time to be in prison. You know, I mean, it's that's a significant part of your life, especially if you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. However, the entire rest of your life isn't even like greater part of your life. Obviously, I don't know. I'd say now that I would probably take it, just with the idea that I could possibly get out and have some kind of life afterwards. Unlike with the non in the Alfred plea, I think it's it's like close to a no brainer for me. It's just like get the hell out of prison. But this is a little bit different.
1: That was an interesting parallel for me, actually, because if Adnan were to get out of prison now or in the next couple of years, he'd be about 35.
2: like yeah. he'd, he'd be about the age that And now he's had Stone a Christina
0: is. Gutierrez kind of lawyer.
2: Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Laura, what do you think? Would you take the deal? Yeah, this is a tough one. You know, I was thinking after we talked about Adnan's case and what he should do. You know, I've sat in on a lot of meetings with defendants, you know, where the attorney will go over a plea deal or a plea offer with them and looked at what people consider – when they decide whether or not to take a plea offer in a case. And you know, in this case, if, if the attorney was sitting in, they would be like, OK, so they've got the videotape of you. They've got your fingerprints on the knife. They've got you fleeing the scene in the taxi. You've got her blood on you. There's the shot glasses. I mean, there's, this is evidence that they would present at trial. And so you have to kind of look at what would they present. What are my chances? 12 to 15 for murder is pretty damn good. I mean, I've had cases I've worked on where people have gotten like 30, and that was considered good. So I think I would take it. What about you, Kevin? Would you, would you take the deal?
0: It's hard when you're innocent. Obviously, you know, you're a young guy. You still get out in your mid-30s. I mean, John Stone said I'd kill to be 36 years old again. Man one, 15 years is a fantastic deal but it's not as good a deal as saving $30 on your first order of bright oh
1: my god the
0: personalized subscription wine company
1: nice
0: and uh, they are there to help you with all your wine related problems well maybe not all of Rebecca's wine related problems not all of them but the best kind so this is a website that was started by two MIT grads and they wait a
1: minute we have a wine sponsor can we just like just pause for a second oh It's like a hallelujah moment on this podcast. We are one step closer to getting Volvo, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead.
0: Well, Volvo is nice, but Bright Sellers is a, a wonderful advertiser because. They have helped Laura and I get going on our first order and Laura, I know that you have looked at the website and you're yes. starting to place your first order here. Explain what happens when you go to brightsellers.com.
2: So, I'm a bit of a wine snob. I mean, you know, my husband criticizes me for this all the time and I tend to get stuck in a rut. I don't know about you guys, but I know what I like. So Me too. You know, And the people I used to work with picked on me all the time. Oh, you're having your Kendall Jackson Chardonnay again. So, I know what I like and I don't vary it up. So, what I like About this, I go to the website and you go through this little taste profile. Like, do you want a Snickers bar or some dark chocolate? Uh, Do you want sweet tea or unsweetened tea or no tea at all? And then it kind of spits out four recommendations for you at the end based on kind of if you say, you know, surprise me or only give me one or the other. So I'm really excited to try the choices that they picked out for me because they have picked out some new Chardonnays. So I'm going to branch out from that Kendall Jackson. It's things that I haven't actually seen in, you know, our local liquor store. And they were picked out by, isn't the
1: algorithm developed by, like, genius people from MIT? Yeah,
0: I mean, this taste yeah. profile thing is is not just um, a, a trick for you to click on different buttons. It's an actual algorithm that these two MIT grads came up with in developing, you know, what kinds of wines that people might like and might like to try. I took the taste profile quiz myself and got four wines. And, you know, there is a function you could say, like, give me all reds or mostly reds or surprise me. And I got my four bottles and I got a really nice... Cab that I uh, was drinking last night, very one with smooth. The, bear on it. the one with the bear on mm. it. We won't use any like uh, brand names here because they give you some stuff that you probably wanted to normally have gone for. Mm-hmm. The Pinot was great. It one had with some, a tree on it. Yeah, it had some great <laughs> legs. <laughs> had great legs. It was very dry. And I'm looking forward to cracking open the Riesling that's in the fridge right now. You know, something that I definitely normally would not have picked out as so a summer w- wine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if you would like to know a little more about this service and get a good deal, then you should go to brightsellers.com slash crime. And when you're there, what you, you'll do is you'll get a $30 credit on your first order. You'll wow. pick out your wines. They'll deliver them right to your door or to wherever somebody 21 years or older it's lives. and like you can sign it for it, right. And uh, you'll get these fantastic wines and other great deals, too. So check it out now. It's brightsellers.com, B-R-I-G-H-T, C-E-L-L-A-R-S, like in the basement cellars, really? dot com slash crime. crime. brightsellers.com dot com slash crime, crime. crime for a $30 credit on your first order. Bright dot com
3: So the conclusion is that given a choice between 15 years in prison or a wine club... Kevin prefers the wine club. I'm taking
0: the wine club every time, Toby. <laughs> all right. Freddie may have a lot of stuff in prison. He don't got no wine. He doesn't That's, send
1: wine to your yeah, house. Yeah, there
0: might be some raw veal, but he doesn't have a Shiraz.
1: I'm just really impressed. At least
0: not one that has a sous of asparagus.
1: I'm just really impressed by all the things that you can get sent to your house now. Our sponsors really have really pioneered in sending things to your house. That box of wine was beautifully packaged.
0: I know. I think of all the other stuff that we have, if we could get... A coffin sent to our house, we'd never have to leave. (laughs) That's
1: true. Or a Volvo. Yeah, I would like a Volvo.
0: Nobody at Volvo is listening to this podcast.
1: If anyone at Volvo is listening to this podcast, hit me up. (laughs) CrimeWritersOn at gmail.com. All right, so now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast a little something I like to call the crime crime of the week. week. A 20-year-old waitress is being sued by a Houston law firm for sharing her awful experience with that firm on Facebook and Yelp. Here's what happened. According to the Houston press, Lan Kai hired the firm Tuan Aku to represent her after she was hit by a drunk driver and a second vehicle. Her first meeting with the attorneys was pretty sketchy. They entered her bedroom while she was half asleep under the covers wearing her underwear Jeez. and offered her discount legal services.
0: Legal briefs, you mean?
1: Despite her misgivings, she hired them, but then says they ignored her calls for days while she was bombarded with questions from insurance hounds. It didn't take long for Kai to decide to switch to a brand new law firm, but first she took to Yelp saying she, quote, wouldn't even give this law firm a single star Ooh, on the five snap. star scale.
0: Legal snap.
1: <laughs> (laughs) Then, on a Facebook group for Vietnamese Americans, she wrote this allegedly defamatory complaint. After three days, they didn't tell me anything about the doctor I needed to go to. I was in a lot of pain. Not only that, they didn't know where the hell my car was. And they came to my house and into my room to talk to me when I was sleeping in my underwear. Seriously, it's super unprofessional. I came into the office to meet with my attorney, and he literally ran off. After seeing her post, that's when the law firm decided to sue her for between 100 dollars and $200,000. Now, she has a new attorney. He's representing her pro bono and is asking the judge instead to order the law firm to pay her $50,000 in damages plus legal fees. So here's my question for you. Laura. You've worked up against a lot of law firms. You've worked with law firms. Is it fair for law firms to get subject to the same kind of criticism that restaurants and hotels get on sites like Yelp and Facebook? What do you think?
2: This is a, this is definitely a pet peeve of mine. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's it's one of the things that used to really irritate me. I think you get a lot of people that are armchair lawyers, and they don't realize what goes into preparing. I mean, I only have criminal experience, so preparing like a criminal case, and they expect these people to be like magicians, and you get them out of jail instantly or get their case dropped. And, you know, sometimes lawyers have to be the voice of reason, and people don't like that. And I could see this just opening a can of worms because there's a lot of good lawyers who, you know, no matter what the case is, They're not going to be able to get it fixed for these people. And those people are going to leave negative reviews.
1: What do you think, Toby? Should people feel safe and like they're not going to get sued if they leave negative reviews for services gotten from law firms the same way they do from restaurants and hotels on sites like Facebook and Yelp?
3: I guess I would answer that by saying if I was Considering hiring Len Kaczynski to be my lawyer, I'd probably like to read Brendan Dassey's review.
1: (laughs) Good point. Good point. Kevin, what do you think?
0: Well, yeah, I think they should be. You should be able to leave a review about any commercial service, including legal services. I mean, there are laws that protect consumers from retaliatory lawsuits based on this kind of thing if the lawsuit is only brought in order to discourage people from honestly leaving a review or be punitive to them just for that. But, you know, what I'm looking at here is this, it doesn't sound like she's written anything that's defamatory or anything that's false. Right. Unless the law firm can prove that, no, they knew where the car was or whatever the heck. Apparently, this this law firm has already got like a whole bunch of one-star reviews. So how can they say this is the one that's ruined their their business. Right. Like it or not, when people read our books or listen to our podcast, they go to Amazon or iTunes or wherever and they leave a starred review. Yeah. I mean, I I'm happy that like, you know, most of our books are 4 plus stars out of 5 on average, but like, occasionally like you get like a 1-star review and this one was like it wasn't delivered fast enough for me. And I'm like, what the hell? Why are you giving? But that you don't understand. My book had nothing to do with how fast it got there. You, why are you giving that one star?
1: You know, speaking of reviews on our podcast especially, um, I, I just do want to read you one of my most recent favorite reviews that this podcast has received on iTunes. Are right. you ready? Yeah. Laura Bricker is bae.
0: <laughs> She's bae.
1: <laughs> Five stars. So I found this podcast during the first season of Serial. This is a great podcast. Blah, 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 blah. Laura Bricker is Bay. Isn't is it one of the, it, the
0: Bricker boys? or
1: <laughs> But is that, is that badass? No, it's like bae. Like bae? You, It's like you're someone's baby. It's like... Oh <laughs> it's
0: like what people say about Beyonce.
1: It's like you're basically Beyonce now, Laura. Yeah. Oh, this is fantastic. So, Toby, what do you think about this news that, that Laura is Bay? Do you agree?
3: Uh, it doesn't surprise me.
1: <laughs> and Kevin, what do you think? Do you agree?
0: I'm not ready for that jelly.
1: <laughs> All right. We should probably end it on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to catch up with you on social media, perhaps give you crap about the fact that you don't remember E.T., how can they find you?
3: I'm still at at Toby Ball NH
1: hey listen if it's their first time listening there's no still man they didn't okay know. if
3: it's your first time listening you can find me at Toby Ball NH
1: and if it's your first time listening stay after the credits for some uh, outtakes Laura Bricker how can our listeners find you on the Twitters at Laura Bricker and what about you Kevin if our listeners would like to tweet with you how can they do so?
0: Uh, I will, again, probably be here tomorrow doing this podcast (laughs) so they can get me at Kevin P. Flynn.
1: And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also find me at Reb Lavoy on Instagram. Follow me there. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us a tweet or a voice memo. Directions for how to do that are posted right on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Buy expensive stuff using our Amazon link. Get more info on our upcoming live podcast taping. And if you love the show, please, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the podcast. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet-sized, overheated media empire next to the furnace in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later.
3: Bulbasaur, Ivysaur, Venusaur bottom high quality chrome metal license plate frame Pokemon 96. (laughs) NADS nose wax for men and women, 1.6 ounces.
0: Nose? For the inside or the out? I
3: don't know. Essential oil carry travel case, premium microfiber quality holds... 10 bottles, size 5 milliliters, 10 milliliters, 15 <laughs> milliliters, and 10 milliliter roll ons. Great for young living ascent.
1: <laughs> so specific.
3: <laughs> Dr. Jill's felt metatarsal pads, 1/4, 10 pieces.
1: Dr. Jill Biden?
3: Jill. Jill. <laughs> okay. Jill.
0: With hundreds of different cards out there, choosing the one that fits you best is tough. Check out NerdWallet.com. Their personalized tools let you compare over 1,700 credit cards in seconds. Find a better credit card, one that best suits you. Get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works hard for you. Visit NerdWallet.com slash crime. That's NerdWallet.com slash crime. NerdWallet.com slash crime.
2: Partners in Crime Media.